put the innovation that's developed in our upstream open source communities that's developed there, we bring that to the commercial world to solve real world problems for our customers. Data has exploded so much that the human eye alone at any one point just can't understand and analyze what's really there for data. Companies first have to do, the and I think one of the most important things is really understand what data they have and where it's located. Make sure that your data is secure, it's accurate, um, and it's accessible. I mean, I think automation can play a really big a role for that. All of this is not possible without an upfront understanding of your architecture and a plan and how to approach it. This is here on a TV. My name is Hendrik Deckers. I'm here today with Paul Cormier, who is the CEO and president of Red Hat. A very warm welcome, Paul. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to talking today. Paul, you have a master's degree from the uh, Rochester Institute of Technology. And after graduation, you participated in education programs at IBM, at DEC. You previously worked at companies such as Alta Vista and Bindview. And you joined Red Hat in 2001 as EVP Engineering, and you were named President and CEO uh, in April 2020. So, Paul, how would you describe Red Hat in a couple of sentences? What is it that your company does really, really well? And uh, maybe put in another way, what is it that you wish people understood about Red Hat? I mean, I, I think the best way to describe it, and frankly, I use this all the time, is, is, is Red Hat is an enterprise software company with an open source development model. Mm -hmm. Now, what that really means is that we put the innovation that's developed in our upstream open source communities that's developed there, we bring that to the commercial world to solve real world problems for our customers. Mm -hmm. You know, Linux and open source development are becoming the norm. They're becoming the mainstream of the infrastructure in the enterprise and in the cloud as well. Yep. Uh, we're already, they're already out there at that. R Red Hat really because of our long history here, is the very well positioned to provide the support and life cycle and an ecosystem around these pieces into products to run mm -hmm. in these commercial environments. So, but we aren't just open. We, we aren't, we, we're also enterprise grade, and that's what we really pride ourselves on. We're both open source development model with enterprise grade products. But the, I think the thing to remember about Red Hat is Red Hat is more than just Red Hat Enterprise Linux, which really was our first and flagship product. We, has, we have developed an entire product portfolio that's built in and around Linux. So we've really leveraged the expertise that we've gained over the last 20 plus years with that. Paul, you're really an inspiring example of transition, uh, somebody that transitioned from an engineer to a leader and a CEO. And you have really transformed Red Hat's product strategy by launching the enterprise Linux subscription model. You have, uh, we're very instrumental in many of the acquisitions. So tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background and, and your journey to become the CEO of, uh, of Red Hat today. Well, I, it's been a long journey actually. And <laughs> I, I think each step of that has, has prepared me. I, I, started, uh, I started with DEC, with Digital Equipment er, er, Corporation in the early days. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, working on computers of that era uh, back in the, believe it or not, the late 70s, the early 80s. And, and that's, really where, that's really where I grew up. I, I really got to understand the inner workings of computers through that time um, in, in my younger years. 
Uh, I, I was one of the few that started um, inside digital. I, I was one of the few that, that started a, a spin-off that we did called AltaVista, which was mm -hmm. the first search engine on yep. the internet, even, be, even before Google. And a yep. uh, software product, and actually probably one of the first software as a service. And uh, just a very, very interesting ride, worked together with research at DEC and brought that out into the commercial world. I think one of the first examples of open source software. Uh, I, I, had the, I had the great opportunity to, uh, to uh, actually work as a visiting engineer at, at MIT on another project called Project Athena, which mm -hmm. was open source back in the 80s and it was a distributed computing environment. Uh, we brought that to market too, very early open source product. I then went out to uh, a, a startup, a couple of startups, um, ended up a mid-sized company called Bindview running their engineering and came to Red Hat in its very, very early stages in 2001. When I started at Red Hat, I think I was employee 150 or so, 120 or so. Uh, we were pretty much a box product in retail, and we took a big risk and decided to focus on the enterprise, and that's where, that's where RHEL was born, uh, which was 21 years ago, and um, we've just moved that out into the market and brought and built around that and brought more open source solutions to the commercial market. I, I, I like to think that, that we at Red Hat had a very big hand in uh, developing and bringing the model of open source developed software to the commercial, to the commercial environment, to the commercial software world. And, and that's what I've been doing for the last 21 years and I've enjoyed every minute of it. I can imagine that. So Paul, the first topic I would like to discuss with you is the what we call the data economy, uh, which is the topic uh, that we want to focus on. So how do you look at this? Companies have been gathering masses of data over the years. They've not necessarily done as much as possible with it. So, so what is it? How can companies be really successful by leveraging the value of all the data that, that they have? What's, what's your view on this? I think the companies first have to do, the, and I think one of the most important things is really understand what data they have and where it's located. Mm -hmm. They then have to take even a step further from that and understand how your applications can best access that data. You know, data has exploded so much that the human eye alone at any one point um, just, just can't understand and analyze what's really there for data. We need to be really be looking at how AI can be used to help analyze the data to help solve real world problems. Having talked about data explosion, think about what you can use automation to really, to really uh, start to make this data world more, more manageable. Make mm -hmm. sure that your data is secure, it's accurate, um, and it's accessible. I mean, I think automation can play a really big, uh, the really big uh, a role for that. And all of this is not possible without an upfront understanding of your architecture and a plan on how to approach it. Okay. And could you elaborate a little bit on how it is that Red Hat and, and, and your solutions and technology helps organizations to become more data-centric? Well, one of, one of the things we do, I mean, one of the things that's exploding in the market right now is this concept of hybrid. And, and um, you know, what hybrid means is that our customers are going to have applications that continue to run on-premise. They're going to have some applications that are going to run maybe in one cloud provider and other applications that may, for whatever reason, run in different cloud providers. This is what hybrid really is all about. 
What we do is with our platforms around what we call OpenShift, that's really built on the foundation of Red Hat Enterprise Linux that I talked about, we really give that platform that gives those applications a common environment to run. And so, mm -hmm. so from a developer perspective, from the operator's perspective, from the securities people's perspective, and even in some cases from the data perspective, um, we give that common platform that runs across all those, those footprints. So it really um, alleviates the need for multiple silos um, th that I talked about earlier, so you can now access what you need to access no matter where you're running. Red Hat Enterprise uh, software company. So you must be talking to a lot of top digital leaders, top CIOs around the world. How do you see their role? How do you see the role of the CIO specifically uh, in building more data-centric businesses? You know, the role of the CIO is changing dramatically right now. I mean, um, you know, not that long ago, the CIO worried about their applications and data and security that were running in the within the four walls of their data center. That's really changed now. As I said, this is now running many applications outside their data centers in clouds, in various clouds. And, but they're still responsible for that. They're still responsible for the development, the operation, and security of that. So I think one of the biggest roles of the CIO is to ensure that a, a, an architecture is laid out. This is what I was just talking about. I think they need to really focus on finding the data that, ex that exists within their organization, where it's located, maybe centralize it, make sure it's clean and usable data, and then figure out how your applications can best make use of it, no matter where they're running. One of the best examples that I've seen is a car manufacturer that we worked with in, in Europe. Mm -hmm. They're now using data all the way out to the edge. And by this, I mean the edge on the, uh, is on the factory floor. They can use data to analyze the paint quality of, 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 a, of a car as, as it's coming off the line. There's compute involved, there's lots of data involved, but it has to be accessible right there at the factory floor. They can do this in real time and make business decisions based on that data if that's an acceptable and a good paint process or, or not and, and have to go back through the process. This is really what's shaping up in terms of a hybrid cloud out to the edge, data being close to the applications that, that are consuming it, and I think you can't do that without having that real understanding of what the overall architecture looks like. Now, there's a lot of use of data internally, but of course there's also a lot of customer data that, that, we, that we can work with. So do you see in all the companies that you work with, do you see innovative business models that companies are using to get more value out of their data assets and, and really use make to monetize their data? Do you maybe have some examples of that? Sure. I mean, I mean, you look at you look at the the big providers out there. You look at you look at the Googles of the world, the Facebooks of the world. Obviously, they're monetizing, yeah. uh, they're monetizing their <laughs> data. Yeah. But I mean, but I mean, e even look. But e if you even look at um, at an insurance company, we work with many insurance companies, where they now have the where they have so much data. But that data may be, as I talked about, scattered ag across different footprints. By now using AI, for one thing, but also having the ability for multiple applications to be able to access data no matter where it lives, they can now do even deeper analysis on things to really, to really get closer to them and, and more accurate on the models that, that they're running. So I, I think we see that a lot, we see that a lot in, in, for example, the insurance industry. The, 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 the manufacturing example that I, that I just gave out there uh, with the paint 
analysis on the factory floor. I mean, in the past, um, you'd have to come all the way back to the data center for that analysis for the, because the compute was living in the, data, in the data center, the data was living in the data center. By the time you came all the way back with that analysis and all that data to the data center, did the compute need it on it and come back, it's too late. So manufacturing is a great place where we see, where we see um, them actually being able to use data that they might not have had available to them before, but to actually make a better product and maybe even make a better product in a, in a less expensive way. Yeah. And what, what would be your number one advice that you would give to CIOs and digital leaders of, and, and what do you think they should focus more on than what you necessarily see today already? I, I think, as I said earlier, the big picture. How does it all mm -hmm. hang together? You know, I, I hate to bring it up again, the edge, but I, I will. Um, the edge, as I said, in, in, in manufacturing, it's on the, it's on the um, factory floor. In, in telco, it might be on the cell tower. In retail, it might be in the branch store. Um, that's part of the hybrid cloud now. So mm -hmm. unless that's really thought about as a CIO lays out the architecture, there's many things that you might not be able to take advantage of. And so, mm -hmm. so I think the one word of advice in this is, is really have a great plan on the architecture, how it's going to hang together, but also think about you know, you know, how you're going to get to that architecture. Because in many cases, going out to, the, to a cloud-first uh, model with your applications, in many cases, that's refactoring the applications um, in, in, in things like that. So in order to do that, you really have to have a good plan. And you know, I, I grew up in the engineering world. I still consider myself an engineer. And I, I think it's very much a mindset like that with mm -hmm. the overall architecture being a, a large engineering project. And, and I think that's the most important thing right now because hybrid, hybrid architecture, it's very, very, very powerful, but it's mm -hmm. also very complex. And so um, understanding, un understanding anything when you're gonna lay, out, lay it out in a complex model is really important before you start. Okay, now if you look at your own company as, as, as a technology company, as a software company, where are you using data in, in optimal ways to, I don't know, give better service to your clients, to optimize processes and, and so on? How do you do that yourself? I'll, I'll give you a couple of great examples of both internal and external. Um, in our support world, um, mm -hmm. we have been doing Linux support for well on 25 years. We have a huge, huge, huge data repository on various problems that we've seen over those 25 years. Mm -hmm. And so now, as we, as we talk to our customers, um, either through knowledge bases or sometimes even through human interaction, when we, when we look at problems, our, even our newer um, engineers can get to a problem in a much faster way because we use AI to analyze data based on symptoms that we're seeing or hearing from our customers. So, um, and like I said, in some cases, it allows us to automate things and we never even have to get uh, a human involved. But in other cases, it actually gets our engineers to a solution that may have been seen many times before in a much faster way. And so I, I think that's, that's, one way, that's one way we look at it. I mean, as we, as we run the company, for example, and, and as we get you know, potential leads for future customers, um, Lot, we have much data there, and we have much historical data from you know, looking at leads on, we may have this many leads, what does that 
usually interpret, you know, what does that really uh, move to in terms of next iteration of a sale? What does that look like in getting to a final sale? We use data extensively in this um, uh, in order to really see where we're going and plan where we're going as a company. Marketing. Marketing data. Marketing is one of the biggest places where, where data is used to try to get to try to do two things. We try to get our message to our customers, trying to get our, the right message to the right customer. In many cases, it might be more fo a fo more focused mes message based on what the customer has told us through many data, um, through many data uh, avenues of what they need to solve their problems. In other cases, um, it may be th the other way around to actually listening, listening to them or trying to determine who might be a better customer for, a be for one particular product line or another. So marketing is really, really a another place that we use data extensively so we can be uh, more precise on our marketing as opposed to just sort of blasting messages out there and hope that p the right people pick it up. Okay. Now, another topic I would like to discuss with you is the, you have a strategic partnership with Intel. So tell us about the, uh, the cooperation, the collaboration between Red Hat and Intel, and, and how does that play in the data field as well? So, you know, Intel's been one of our most uh, strategic and closest partners for a long time, from the beginning of Red Hat. And, I mean, if you look at where we started in Linux, what Linux does is really Linux abstracts the hardware. And what, and what really the first... Thing that Linux, the first big thing that Linux bought, brought to our enterprise customers in the beginning was the ability to um, run a powerful enterprise class operating system across multiple hardware from multiple vendors. The same, hard, the same Intel chips from multiple vendors. Right before us, the Unix was driving the enterprise, but Unix was a vertical stack from the hardware to the firmware to the operating system, which was all customized just in that vertical way. What Linux really brought to the table here was um, something that, fr frankly, Microsoft did first. With Windows, Microsoft brought an operating system that went across all vendors' hardware. What we did with Linux was really bring a, a, an enterprise operating system that went across all servers that were based on Intel. So, so there's a lot of enablement that Intel works with us in the upstream community to ensure that the features of their chips are lit up early in the development process of, of any one uh, particular release of, of, of Linux. So we've done co-creation and collaboration with them for years. And really that co-creation co and collaboration is really the foundation of how the open source community works. And frankly, I just think it's a way to just, it just brings better te technical results. So, so I, I think from the beginning that Intel's been that strong partner with us. We, we, get, we work with Intel under secure um, NDAs so we can understand um, th their new hardware that's coming two, three, four years down the pike so we can ensure that Linux is ready for it when it comes to market. And so that's how close of a relationship we've had and continue to have with Intel. Um, because we're, we're in this together with the hardware and the operating system working hand in hand. Now, Red Hat and Cionet, we've been collaborating for several years, many years now as well, and, and you've been supporting our community of digital leaders. And so I've spoken to quite some executives, to quite some salespeople, technology people, marketing people of your company. And what always strikes me 
is that you have, I think, a special company culture at, at Red Hat. So, and, and I understand that that's built around the open concept. So tell us a little bit, how is, how does, how is that from your point of view? How do you make sure that you have this special company culture within Red Hat and that you keep that even now that the company is, is, uh, is, has become so big? Well, we, we, we really model how we act in the company to how we, how we collaborate in the open source community. And, and the way it works in the open source community and, and here, I think, is we, we put together an environment where the best idea wins. The best idea sh should be able to bubble to the top. And mm -hmm. now, having said that, when you finally get to that best idea and the best implementation of that idea, you, sh you should debate is involved in how to get there. You have to be able to listen to multiple parties and debate on why it may or may not be the best idea. But then you have to line up and, and, really, and really have a leader with it and, and drive it forward. And I like to think that that's, that's how we, how we um, run the company. The best idea wins. It can come from anywhere. You should foster an open debate on that, that idea, then iterate till you get to the best, best version of it and move forward. We were born in that open source community. We've taken that across the entire, in, entire company. So we really mean that when we say that at, at Red Hat. Anyone can call me or email me or message me or any, any member of our, my leadership team at any time with any thoughts or ideas that they have. And frankly, from a management perspective, we think we own it, owe it to everyone in the company when we do get to a decision we think we owe it to everyone in the company to clearly articulate the decision, clearly articulate how we got to that decision, and most importantly, why we got to that decision. And that's a really important part of having the open culture. Mm -hmm. Now, you are a witness of an amazing growth, right? You joined uh, when the company had 150 people. Now, today you have more than 20,000 people working for, for Red Hat. You, your revenue has doubled over the last couple of years. So there's a, I mean, there's an amazing growth. So as a CEO, how do you manage that growth? What are the challenges for you to manage the growth of, 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 uh, of your company? Well, you know, I, I, think, I think the biggest um, challenge, I, I think, is one of the things is strategy. We work a lot on strategy and, and we've managed to stay ahead of the pack with strategy. So that's a challenge unto itself, but I think the bigger challenge has been communication of that across the company. 150 people, it was pretty easy. You get everybody in a room and you sort of go through it and hash it out and answer questions. With 20,000 person people in 60 or so countries, it makes it more difficult. So, so that communication is something that we, we really work on very hard. Now, if you're gonna go back to my previous comments around everyone, the best idea wins and everybody has an opportunity to contribute to those ideas, you have to be open to those ideas, even when, mm -hmm. even when an idea might be counter to what you think or you've put on the table. So I think, I think it comes back to just being yourself and being authentic. You know, I, I, you know, I don't have a work personality and, and a private personality. I have my personality, which is the same in both worlds. And, and I think people... I think people see that, and I think I think that's important. Uh, I, I, I I like to tell people, you know, you got to be true to yourself here, and mm -hmm. um, and and really leave the ego at the door, and be open to the best idea, which can and oftentimes does come from anywhere. So, Paul, you're clearly a, a very successful leader, right? So, I want to. Um 
deep dive a little bit more in your leadership style. And so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm gonna provoke you with the next question. What do you think your team, the people that work with you on, on a daily basis, what do you think they will say about you when you're not around? How do you think you're perceived by your teams? Well, I guess that depends on the day, but <laughs> uh, I, 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 I think in general, I think what they'd say is that um, uh, I, I'm decisive, but I'm open to a better idea. Uh, mm -hmm. I think what they'd also say, though, is that when we get to a point where we make a decision on what we're going to do and how we're going to do it with an idea, um, some may call it stubborn, some may call it persistent. I'll drive that idea and, and, and we'll, drive that, um, we'll drive that really, really hard. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I think I can be a hard driver, but I also think that, uh, I like to think anyways, that, that I'm, open, I'm open to suggestion, even along the way, if we, if we have to iterate, even along the way, if there's a better idea. I mean, I oftentimes say, I'm, I'm way open to criticism on this, but it, you, sh you should really have a better idea. And so mm -hmm. I, I, think, I think that's a characterization of, of what I do. I mean, it's taken, it's taken persistence in this, in, this, in this world, in the open world. You have to understand, we upset the technology industry here. We don't have IP to hide behind. Every, all, we develop a lot of IP, but we give that all back to the open source community, and, which includes our competitors. So mm -hmm. to be able to build a business like this on, on, an open, on an open technology framework, um, you, have to, you have to have, um, in my opinion, you have to have that drive to know when you got it right and drive to get it and take it over the goal line. Uh, our products, um, you know, RHEL, was a, they're, they're all long-term, RHEL, OpenShift, Ansible, they're all long-term bets on us. And, and, and that's how we've run the company from the beginning, is we don't look at what we're going to do and what we're doing next as what it's going to do for us for next quarter, we look at that, how it's going to affect the company in the long term. Okay. And what does that drive you? What is it that really excites you? When at the end of the week, are you a happy person? Um, I mean, what, what's important for you? You know, what really drive, a couple things really drive me. You know, when we, when we set a direction and we start to see people across the company that really start to understand it and understand how they, how they can affect it, how they can really make this direction successful. Uh, mm -hmm. when, when you start to see that light bulb go on, that's really important. From a product perspective, some of the risks we've taken, when you start to see those really take off. I mean, like with RHEL, I mean, like you say now, you know, very, very successful. But, you know, taking a free operating system into the world to take on Linux, to take on the Unixes, and even Windows of the world, you know, when we first started that, it was by no means uh, a sure win. Starting mm -hmm. to see that take hold um, really, really excites me. Hybrid cloud, open hybrid cloud. We were the first really on that. And the reason why we were the first with that is because cloud, all clouds, they're built on Linux. And because we were the, have been the leaders in Linux for so long, we were helping our customers try to get to the cloud. So we early on understood, you know, some of the, some of the difficulties in getting applications to the cloud. We understand it's, we understood it was very powerful technology but it's not just lifting and shifting necessarily an application. So we mm -hmm. understood that from the beginning and that's how we knew it was gonna be a hybrid world. 
So we came out with that really early. And frankly, now the whole industry's on hybrid. So to see the industry move to that, to see our platforms like OpenShift be the leader in hybrid cloud, those things are really, really satisfying. But you know, as I said, we've taken the long-term approach. So you might not get that satisfaction overnight. But once that starts to happen, it, it's really fun. I mean, building a successful company is a marathon. It's not a sprint, right? Um... Absolutely. Okay. Now, what I wanted to know, because I think top CEOs, top CIOs have a certain secret ingredient. And so I'm on a quest to find out what is the secret ingredient of, of you and, and, and other top leaders. So let's talk a bit about your core values, because I think that is so important. You said there's the, the poll at work, the poll at home is the, is, is the same. So I know that you have two children. What are the core values that you have passed on to your children? What are the core values that, that you live by yourself? I think the main core values, I said it earlier, is be true to yourself. Um, mm -hmm. No egos. Um, uh, there's always someone that's as smart, if not smarter than you. Understand that. Um, uh, your reputation is the most important thing um, that you can have. Um, be, be honest and upfront. I mean, as I said earlier, one of the hallmarks of what it means to have an open culture is to explain to people not only what the decision is, how you made the decision, and why you made the decision. I think mm -hmm. always being able to do that, even to yourself, is really important. If you can't answer those questions to yourself, then how can you possibly get people to follow you on anything? So I, I just think that that comes back to the whole openness thing. Um, you know, I, I know it's hard for, for some people because, you know, some people may call it politics. I might call it playing games. I, I just don't think that gets you anywhere. At the end of the day, you have to come and um, be honest with yourself if you, if you expect people to really follow you in a direction. But you also, if you expect people to follow you, I think you have to be willing to change when they come up with a better idea. And I think that's where ego comes in. Just ego, in my opinion, is one of the worst things going. Now, as, as a leader of a 20,000 people business, growing business, you must be working very, very hard. That's, I mean, there's no way around that. So you must be doing long days uh, and long weeks. So how do you balance that? How do you, uh, how do you stay uh, sane in, in this world? Now, especially in the last couple of years, the world has changed a lot. So, so how do you make sure that you keep the balance? And, and, and I know that you're a runner. Is that something that helps you? Running, running helps a ton. I run five plus days a week. Uh, oh. it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it's not only, it's not only great from a physical perspective, but from a mental perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think that's, that's one of the best ways. Uh, I, I like to ski a, as well and be out there. You, you have to take, you have to take that time for yourself. And, mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that's important. And, and I try not to, I try not to, um, even though I've been working for home for, from home for almost two years, um, Certainly, I, I discuss my my job with um, with my wife, but I try not to bring the problems that I have day to day to solve uh, back in, in in those discussions. I mean, you have to you have to separate that. Um, you have to separate that, and I think that's important. As you said, it's been difficult over the last couple of years because I, every time I walk by my office and hear an email coming in, you sort of have you start to look so. But, but I, think, I think it's those things. You have to have some 
distractions to be able to se separate yourself from that. And frankly, even even in terms of separation, even on my runs in the morning, if we're having a tough, a tough problem to solve or something, that's sometimes when you come up with a good idea as well. So that's the most relaxing thing to me. Okay. Now I know that you're an avid reader. And so we have produced the CIO Note cookbook that's sponsored by Red Hat and, and, and Intel. And, and you have written the foreword in this. Uh, and so besides the CIO Net cookbook, what books would you advise our members to read this year? All right. I, re I read Satya's book. Um, I read Satya's book this, this year. Um, I thought it was uh, a great uh, chronicle of, you know, a life and in, in, in how just from a, a regular upbringing, he came to become one of the leaders of one of the largest corporations in the world. I, I, think, he, I think he actually has some of the traits that I talked about in terms of mm -hmm. being, being real, being honest with himself, um, you know, just being a genuine person. So, I, I I think I think that's that's a great one. I read uh, I read President Obama's book. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I thought that was I thought that was a really good book. Again, from humble beginnings, and to become the president of the United States. I, I sort of, you know, I, I sort of like to read books like that that are you know historic, maybe in the technology field. Not 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 necessarily always in the technology field, but Sort of maybe maybe it's leadership books maybe it's things like that but yeah. I mean those are those are two that I thought were were really good and and I just think great examples of just how quote regular people can really rise up and and take on roles that have effect on many many people but yeah. I, I like the fact in both I like the fact in both that they looked at it and see themselves as continue to see themselves as just a regular person so Paul you have been very successful and and so if you look back you started you, you told me that you started back in the 70s in, in your career so you have a long career already what is one of maybe one of the best things that has ever happened to you in your life well of course meeting my wife right so <laughs> of course but 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 I'll, well but I'll talk about that for a minute mm -hmm. because my wife is a very smart strong person mm -hmm. and she's you know when when I said that, you know I there's no difference between my work persona and my my home persona and I also commented that ego is kills uh, my wife keeps me on that keel um, mm -hmm. she <laughs> we are in our marriage it's very similar here if uh, if my idea is not the best she's gonna call me on it and and she if she's got a better idea she's gonna she's gonna debate for that better idea I really really like that I think I think she has kept me very very grounded on that and I think we have um, we've we've sort of brought up our, our two children in the same way, so we have some very interesting discussions. So I, I think that's that's really one person in my life that, that was the best thing that's that's happened to me in my life mm -hmm. for a whole bunch of reasons. And she's a great person. I, I think in, in my in my business world, um, frankly, um, my biggest break given to me um, back in the '80s was by a woman, and when we started. This group that I talked about, the Alta Vista group, when I was at DEC, it was a brand new group fake, focused on the internet. I mean, internet wasn't even thought about yet. Uh, I was the youngest person that went for the job to, um, to, uh, to run the group. And uh, it was a woman executive that was running the overall group. She gave me a huge, huge break by giving me that job. And so, uh, and she gave me great advice and continued for many years and giving me great advice. So. 
the, the person in my life that gave me the biggest break in my career was a woman early on when there weren't many women in technology, which is why I also uh, am a huge supporter of women in technology. So I think, I think those are a couple things, both that personal life that's come into my professional life and in pure professional life that have been amazing things that have happened to me. Now let's look at the other side of the coin as well. I mean, not everything is, is, is not everything that, that we do is successful. So there's some bad things that happen to us, to us as well. So can you maybe share one of these? What is maybe one of the, the worst things that happened to you in your life and how did you overcome that? What did you learn from that? Well, you know, it's a, it's a great question, you know, and I, you know, and I'll take it from the professional side. I mean, you know, we've done, since I've been here at Red Hat, we've done 30 or so acquisitions. Um, mm -hmm. You know, all of them are risks. Whenever you do an acquisition is a risk. Frankly, the products we've done have been risks. Not all risks pay off. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think one of the hardest, I think one of the most important things for executives to understand is don't be afraid to fail. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's been a, some of those acquisitions, a couple of those acquisitions that, that didn't pan out the way we thought they were going to pan out. That's tough because you're, you're spending shareholder money on it, you're spending resources on it, and you get to the point um, that it, it just doesn't work. I mean, there's been a couple of those. That's really, really tough to admit that. And in some cases, you, you have to stop it and, and, and really to, to, to really cut the cord on those. Those are really, really tough because mm -hmm. um, not only from the financial side, from the investors, et cetera, but even the people that have come in with that company, they have been passionate about that company. And now you say, well, we're not going to do that anymore. So th those, are, those are tough. But at the same time, um, if we were afraid to fail, we probably wouldn't have taken some of the chances that we took that made the company as successful as it, as it is. So I think you have to look at it from both sides. Well, if you have to make tough decisions, do you have a personal mantra? Do you have a saying? Do you have like a, a personal wisdom that helps you to, uh, to make tough decisions? I, I, think, I think I actually just said it. Don't be afraid to fail. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think that's the, the mantra. I have seen so many people that are afraid to fail and that just want to be conservative and do it the way they've been doing it for a number of years and get to the end of, you know, two, three, four years down the road and realize that it's just not going to work anymore and it's too mm -hmm. late. And that might be from a personal skill sets perspective or maybe something in how you run one of the pieces of the company or even a company itself. So I, I think in coming into tough decisions, I think that personally, I think that not being afraid to fail without being reckless, but not being afraid to fail is, um, is one of the traits that I think um, is very, very, very important. Now, if you look back when you started your career and you were a young professional, and I, I can imagine that you were ambitious at the time as, as well. And, and so if you would speak to young digital professionals today that have the ambition to follow in your footsteps, that want to become a, a, a top leader in, in technology companies or in enterprises, what would be the advice that you would give to your younger self? What is the advice that you give to young digital professionals? I, I think, yeah, I've, I've had a lot of success along the way. Uh, I'd like to think that every time I reached a goal or a plateau, I'd like to think I got there on my merits and not on having to uh, step over someone else or, you know, or push back someone else. Um, 
I, I believe in karma, and mm -hmm. and I and I think um, I think that that's that's the advice that I I would give is go for it, but get there on your merits and not by you know pushing back uh, or 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 you know uh, or uh, criticizing someone else that may go that may be going for the same thing. Um, uh, I, I just think that will come back to haunt you someday, and so. I, I, I'd like to think that's how I've, I've run my career. Okay. And on that note, Paul, I would like to thank you for this interview. It was a pleasure meeting you and uh, I hope to meet you in person uh, in, in the near future. Me as well. It's been, it's been a pleasure and, and actually fun. So thanks very much for inviting me.